This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. John Rappaport, veteran investigative journalist, a Pulitzer Prize nominee, and the founder of No More Fake News, will be here in Hour 1 to talk about the coronavirus, COVID-19, In Hour 2, engineer, entrepreneur, inventor Brooks Agnew returns to the program. After more than a decade of trying to organize an expedition to the North Pole in search of an entrance into the inner Earth, Brooks is confident it's finally going to happen, and he'll be here with the details. In his series of blogs on the China epidemic at nomorefakenews.com, John Rappaport asks if a group wanted to stage a frightening epidemic, how would they do it? John Rappaport has worked as an investigative reporter for 20 years. He's the author of five books. He's written on medical fraud, deep politics, health issues uh, for newspapers and magazines in the U.S. and Europe, including CBS Health Watch, Spin, Stern, and L.A. Weekly. John Rappaport, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Okay, Richard, it's great to be here after a long absence, and I'm glad we have a chance to talk. Yeah, I've missed you, and, and I know my listeners have missed you, so it's, it's great to have you back on. Thank you. Thank you. This coronavirus uh, pandemic, uh, so-called, uh, I mean, this really must tick all the boxes for you in terms of, well, I've been following your blog very, very closely, and uh, in terms of like a major psyop uh, and so many different things at play here in terms of, you know, who's pulling the lever. So uh, let, let's talk about the, the pandemic fear and, and, and the impact it's having on the stock market. Uh, just weigh in here at any point okay well i just finished uh writing an article about this i'm not sure when it's going to be posted because i've been writing articles every day and uh, we have a lineup ready to go at all times and uh it just doesn't quit um yeah part of the psyop is obviously the depression of trading markets stock markets all over the world and, uh, of course, when that happens, uh, big players make hay because they have foreknowledge. And so they can weigh in and do what's called shorting stocks, 
which means they bet that they're going to go down, and then when they go down and down and down and down at the bottom, they uh, buy, and then they make enormous profits. So that is one of the things that happens. Another thing economically that happens is that many businesses and companies, because of quarantines and restrictions on trade and people staying indoors and so on, lose a lot of money. And so elite players and their agents can sniff out these companies, move in, buy them out, take them over. Uh, it's consolidation. It happens in every recession. And again, uh, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer. So this is one aspect of it, the economic aspect. And then, of course, because I believe that all of these uh, so-called epidemics are globalist psyops, the idea is to damage as many economies as possible because part of the agenda is we need to level out economies around the world, making them easier to take over. We don't want uh, five or ten countries to be uh, very, very prosperous and flourishing. So that's what happens in one of these uh, so-called epidemic situations. How much damage can they do? Well, for starters, well, I mean, they were, they were at one point, China was bragging about uh, 10% growth. And by some estimates, just just since the the uh, the outbreak of coronavirus, that's been cut in half to 5%. But some some economists are actually saying that that even that's uh, a lie that China is now in a deep recession. Exactly. So China is, of course, one of the holdouts in a sense, in the globalist plan, because China considers itself the number one country in the world. They want to remain completely independent. They want to buy up as much land and business all over the world as they possibly can. They want to build up their economy and ship products as they do everywhere, become the, <clears throat> excuse me, become the number one exporter in the world. But at the same time, they're making lemonades out of lemons because they are rapidly building what they call these smart cities, which are gigantic operations. Uh, they used to be called empty cities or ghost cities because nobody was even there. And they can move in huge numbers of people by edict without having to go through any kind of red tape. And in these smart cities, you will have uh, 5G technology, the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, wall-to-wall -wall surveillance, uh, monitoring of energy use and quotas, food quotas, travel uh, limits, and, and on and on and on. In other words, a more advanced form of Brave New World. So in that sense, they're okay because that was their plan anyway, and here is a very good excuse uh, to not only continue it, but to accelerate it, which they are doing. So it's not all one thing or another for them. And people should be you know, extremely aware of this. 
the general movement is called technocracy, which is engineering the world to make captive all the people of the world through technical means. And China is very aware of this. They're on the road to it. They've been on the road to it for some time, and they're speeding it up. There's the other level of the operation that you write uh, about in your blog, and these are available at nomorefakenews.com, nomorefakenews.com. And uh, that is uh, the amounts, uh, immense amounts of highly toxic antiviral drugs that the pharmaceuticals will now peddle. You bet. These are very dangerous drugs. Uh, Some of them or all of them have the ability to stop not only the reproduction of microbes in the body, but the reproduction of cells in the body. They're extremely toxic drugs. And uh, one of them, you know, underwent years of conflict and in trying to go public and be certified as safe and effective, and there were scandals around it and so on. Well, these drugs are going to be used by the ton to treat people who show nothing more, essentially, than a positive reading diagnostic test for this supposed coronavirus. That's exceedingly dangerous. And behind that, of course, is the rush to develop new types of vaccines that can be used, again, supposedly against this coronavirus. I've written extensively about that. In a nutshell, there are two experimental vaccine technologies which could be approved on a rush basis. One is called DNA vaccines. And without getting into all the particulars, they permanently alter the genetic makeup of anyone who receives the vaccine. And that uh, alteration occurs in unknown ways. This is straight out of the New York Times in, I believe it was March of 2015. The other type is RNA vaccines. And they have the uh, potential challenge and adverse effect of causing what are called autoimmune reactions, meaning that the body basically goes to war against itself, which is also highly dangerous. So these are on the drawing boards, uh, and there are, of course, companies and organizations and public health officials that want to see these new types of vaccines in the pipeline and released for public use, and this would be really a nightmare. Uh, talk to me about the role of the World Health, Health Organization in all of this, because the, the director general of, the, of WHO uh, comes from a very corrupt Marxist-Leninist authoritarian regime in Ethiopia. This is the guy that wanted to promote Robert Mugabe uh, as a goodwill ambassador for the World Health Organization, and yet he's running this huge enterprise, which, by the way, is largely funded by U.S. taxpayers. Indeed. You're reading my mind, Richard, because uh, you're, you're going down some of the points in the latest article I just finished writing here. Um, 
the World Health Organization and the Centers for Disease Control in America basically run these PSYOP epidemic operations from the medical side. Uh, they announce the epidemics. They claim that there's a new outbreak. They report on the, quote, science. They name the disease. They name the always new and never-before-seen virus. Uh, they put pressure on countries who are recalcitrant and uh, don't really want to go along with all of the quarantines and other advisories, and they can exert considerable pressure. And you have to remember that the World Health Organization is a branch of the United Nations, a fact which the mainstream press always manages to play down because a lot of people understand that the United Nations is a fundamentally globalist organization that wants to extend the idea of one world uh, rule from above. And these epidemics provide an occasion for moving closer to that. The Director General of the United Nations, of course, and I'm glad you brought that up, has been extremely complimentary of the way China is handling things. And so that's no surprise. China has now locked down 100 million people in one form of lockdown or another. In many, many cities, not just three or four anymore. And there are various degrees of lockdown and so on. But that's what's going on there. In other words, the government says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to quarantine all of these people uh, to contain the spread. And then the World Health Organization comes along and says, this is wonderful. Uh, China is setting a beautiful example for the rest of the world. And we have to, uh, you know, give them great uh, kudos and applause. And between the lines... The subtext of all of that is, wouldn't it be a much better world if the whole thing ran like China's running things? That's what's going on here, and it's absolutely horrendous. And, of course, people who are buying what the World Organization is selling about the very nature of this so-called epidemic are nodding their heads and saying, well, you know, it might be brutal and it might be overreaching, but... Yeah, we have to contain the spread of the virus, and so I guess uh, China is really doing a good job. Because that's the blueprint for the rest of us. Exactly. That's the blueprint that globalist technocrats want to install. They want to see a world of smart cities where you have, let's say, a trillion objects uh, connected to one another as if each object, anything from a refrigerator to uh, uh, a keyboard to a washing machine uh, to a toaster to a car to a house is all connected to the so-called Internet of Things and they're all tied in together. And through 5G and automation and so on and so forth, artificial intelligence, 
you have essentially, and I know I'm skipping a few steps here, but I'll just get to the bottom line, a global energy authority which can monitor in real time from moment to moment the total energy production and usage of any individual group, nation, anywhere in the world, and therefore, quote, for the good of all, set energy quotas for every individual and country and so on and so forth. This is where all of this is heading. This is what technocracy and globalism ultimately want. It's interesting because people were up in arms about these smart meters. Uh, and, and I don't know uh, if this is true or not, but I'm, I'm guessing that, you know, there may be, uh, have been communities that, that rejected smart meters. They didn't want any part of it. So uh, they may have felt that they, they won a victory. But meanwhile, if, if we're adopting 5G, I mean, forget about smart meters. These are smart meters on steroids. They'll be able to monitor every, every um, watt Ooh, of, okay. a, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is good. I'm glad you brought this up. Exactly. Let's uh, name a few terms here. Sustainability, smart meters, Agenda 21, the greening of the planet, climate change. All of these terms are really used, aimed at, and targeting the world population to move into this kind of brave new world that I'm talking about. And the rollout of 5G and the Internet of Things is all a fundamental part of this. Uh, The smart meters, as you say, are just one little element of the overall plan. Uh, So 5G, ridiculously, is being sold as now you can download a film instead of, I don't know, 10 seconds in, in one second. Great. I mean, we're going to spend a trillion dollars or more or 50 trillion or whatever globally so that that can happen. Right. Because what would we do without those nine seconds? What would we possibly do with those nine seconds? Your toaster will, you know, talk to the toast and make sure it's perfect. Your refrigerator will keep track of everything in it and automatically order new food once things start to run out. Your washing machine will do everything perfectly uh, through uh, uh, artificial intelligence, etc., etc. And all these devices can talk to each other and make sure that you are uh, utilizing energy properly and you're not overdoing it in one area or another, etc., etc., etc. So, yeah. This is the this is the plan. This is the rollout. This is the vision that's happening. And so, again, for example, in China, this whole so-called crisis is actually accelerating China to move into that world that it is building and to populate it with untold millions of its own citizens who have no choice in the matter. It's interesting because we've, we've been watching these cities being built and wondering why they are they're ghost towns. And so now it makes perfect sense. First, they build them and, and, and you build it, they will come. So now they have the excuse to herd uh, these people into these cities. And 
uh, perhaps you know many will um, many will go willingly, and perhaps some will not. Uh, John Rappaport is here from NoMoreFakeNews.com, and you can read his um, voluminous blog entries there, NoMoreFakeNews.com. Uh, we're coming up on a break here, but let's just start to talk about the role of uh, the media uh, in this, because uh, they have been really the, the, uh, the tip of the spear in hyping this, uh, you, you know, clickbait and so forth, and, and uh, the, the coming pandemic and uh, almost making it sound like the apocalypse is nigh. Uh, are they all basically beholden to the same people or are they, are they uh, useful fools? What's happening? Mostly useful fools and, and robots. They go along with the prevailing authorities, which in this case, Centers of Disease Control, National Institutes of Health, uh, World Health Organization and the governments, of course, follow suit, and so so does the press. But the press, <clears throat> clickbaiting all the time, always manages to exacerbate the situation. For example, uh, governments around the world, and militaries in particular, have these pandemic scenarios tucked away that they have been cooking up for years and years and years. What are we going to do if suddenly a virus takes over and sweeps the world? How do we handle quarantines, lockdowns, rebellions, shortages of water, food, etc., etc., etc.? Because this is basically now a military situation. Martial law, emergency, etc., etc., etc. So now uh, they're pulling these out of the shelves and blowing the dust off them and presenting them to the press. Well, these are great stories. So the press begins to trumpet these. Well, in Australia, and I'm uh, paraphrasing an article now, governments may need to quarantine mass numbers of people in stadiums. Stadiums, outdoors. Um, shut down businesses, etc. Well, yeah, they've been putting this, uh, these charts on paper for 20 years now, the militaries, and they're just pulling them out and, you know, all right, let's give this to uh, ABC and give that to NBC and so on, and let's, you know, because militaries are drooling over the prospect of being sent into cities to restore order and do all these things. So, yeah, the press, the purpose of the press is to hype all this baloney make people afraid, make them want to follow orders, make them accept the portrait and the picture of what this epidemic is, which, as I've been detailing in uh, article after article, is totally false. I mean, down to the basics of the research in the labs and the viruses and all of that, it's a total hoax. Well, we'll, uh, we'll take a time out. We'll take a, t- a time out, John. When we come back, we'll we'll talk about how they've staged this fake epidemic. John Rappaport from No More Fake News, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. John Rappaport is with us from NoMoreFakeNews.com. Before we get uh, back to our discussion on coronavirus, tell us how we can get a, uh, a copy of your Matrix series on uh, CD-ROM. Sure. 
you can just go to my website, nomorefakenews.com. You'll see the pictures and the graphics and so forth, and you can read all about these uh, very large collections of information about the Matrix, what it really is, and uh, getting out of it uh, a huge amount of information that I've accumulated over the years. And uh, you can also join our free email list and get my articles in your email box. So the idea that this was is a fake epidemic, uh, it's been staged. So let's walk through how that is done exactly. Yeah. This, this for a lot of people, is uh, impossible to fathom because they're so uh, programmed to accept the virus as a given. So anytime anybody says it's a virus, a set of a whole chain of reactions goes off in the mind. My work over the last uh, 30 plus years, I guess at this point, uh, more actually, has been to go under the surface and ask the most basic questions. Because right from the get-go back in 1987, I perceived that the virus was one of the most useful cover stories ever invented on the planet, meaning that it's used to cover up huge corporate crimes and destruction and destruction by governments through obvious means like stealing gigantic tracts of farmland from native peoples and turning them into corporate agriculture to export all of the food. The people end up starving. Uh, These corporations build factories and plants that emit horrendous pollution, killing people, on and on and on and on and on. The sewage runs directly into the drinking water, I've detailed this numerous, numerous times. So these have to be covered up. They have to be shoved deep into the background, out of sight. The press cannot make a gigantic ongoing issue of this. Verboten. How are we going to cover it up? Well, every time we need to uh, do this sort of thing, we'll just float the idea of a new epidemic caused by the virus and everybody will stand up and salute hypnotically. So I began to ask questions like, forget, you know, uh, highly secure biological labs, forget bioweapons facilities, forget stolen viruses, forget all of this kind of chatter and blah, 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 blah. And let's go to the basic question of how do scientists actually discover a new virus in the first place? I mean, that's one of the most fundamental questions to ask. They say, well, we just found a new coronavirus in China. Yeah, it seemed like it took you maybe a day to do this. How did you do it? Right. We've never seen it before. Yeah. How do you even know to look for it? Where to look? How to look? What's the procedure? What's the test? What do you do in the laboratory? How do you take the tissue sample from the patient? What do you do with the sample? What don't you do? All of these much more fundamental questions. And so I ask people as a sort of uh, 
stunner to imagine this. You got 50 scientists working in a biowarfare lab somewhere, and they're intent on developing gigantic amounts of virus that can kill millions and millions of people, and yet, and yet, they have no idea what they're friggin' doing. Not even a clue. By nature of their training, their programming, their education, their medical school, they are such true believers in the virus that they use completely inadequate, worthless, unreliable methods to claim that they've discovered a new virus when in fact they haven't. Not even close. You talk about something called... Uh, Sorry, you talk about something called indirect markers that they use. Yes, indeed. They will say, well, we can't see this virus. Of course, it's too small. And even if we could, we really don't. Uh, You know, it doesn't work that way. We're going to produce a series of indirect markers by which we can claim if we discover the markers in the body, such as the presence of a certain particular enzyme, for example, we can say, ah, there is going to be a virus, and it's going to look like this. It's going to be of this type, generally speaking, and we can narrow that down and on and on and on. And that's how they operate. So God knows what they end up with, actually. And therefore, God knows what they're actually working on in the lab. We know what they think they're working on, Uh, And if there are any of them who don't believe in the uh, holy doctrine, they keep their mouths shut because their careers and, and even worse are on the line here. So that's where I began to actually really get down inside this whole fake science stuff because that's where you get the essence and the distillation of what a fake epidemic is. Because you could then say, well, you know, I want to see the kind of proof that I have figured out along with the people that I've consulted with. I want to see this kind of proof that you discovered a virus exists, a new virus, not your indirect markers. So can you show me the electron microscope photographs of these new viruses, not just taken from one patient, but hundreds of patients that you say are suffering from this new epidemic. And these photographs should all look about the same. And they should really depict what everybody would agree are definitely lots and lots and lots and lots of particles in these electron microscope photographs that are viruses. Can you do that? And then the answer is, well, we don't need to. We did it in one or two cases. Here's what we found. You look at the photographs. They're completely inadequate. And they dismiss you and they say, we've got more advanced procedures now. We don't need to do that. And blah, blah, blah. And then on top of that, and I've detailed all of this in my articles, the diagnostic tests, what are they? What are they used for? Well, they're used to say that patient A is now a case of the epidemic. I mean, how else are they going to do that? They have to run a test. And they say, ah, we have found another case in Thailand. Ooh, we found one in Boston. Ooh, we found one in London. Ooh, we found one here in in, uh, Taiwan, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Based on an independent marker that could be, could be, or likely is totally unrelated 
to the virus. Exactly. I've even gone further into these types of tests, diagnostic tests, to show why they're totally inadequate and worthless and unreliable, each one. Therefore, when they talk about case numbers and how many countries are afflicted and affected and blah, 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 this is sheer hype, sheer promotional hype parading as science. And of course, the mainstream press is completely unaware of this, so they just go along. Governments are completely unaware of this. Most scientists are completely unaware of this. It's one of these incredible, astonishing, astounding situations where only a few scientists have dared to blow the whistle and say, you've gone off the rails completely here in medical science research and you can never get back on because you're all beholden to money, big money, big pharmaceutical money, big World Health Organization influence that demands that new diseases are, and new viruses are discovered all the time and from time to time epidemics are uh, claimed to exist and there's no way out of this trap if you want to stay in the mainstream. This is what is happening. So when I say fake epidemic, that's what I mean. We're, com- we're coming up on another break here, John, but let's uh, address this now and then could carry on after the, the break. And that is, how do they determine, and we'll talk about who they are, I guess, later as well, where this uh, outbreak will, will begin? Why Wuhan? Does that relate to, uh, I mean, you, you talked about how they want to use the virus as cover. Well, what's happening in Wuhan? Terrible air pollution, like most of China. Is that why they chose Wuhan? I think that is one of the reasons. Yes, absolutely. Terrible air pollution and uh, apparently Wuhan is a center of planetary 5G technology rollout. And of course there's a whole science uh, about 5G technology and the harmful health effects that it has. So therefore to cover that up, to cover the deadly air pollution up, Let's talk about a virus. Let's say it's all a virus. It's just a virus, folks. It's, you understand that. It has nothing to do with anything else. All right. We'll take another time out and come back. How to stage a fake epidemic with investigative reporter John Rappaport. No more fake news. Right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. John Rappaport. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. John Rappaport is with us. Nomorefakenews.com, the website. And uh, be sure to check out his uh, Matrix series available on CD-ROMA, a a giant collection of uh, important information and how to escape the Matrix. And uh, we were talking about staging a fake epidemic uh, and why they chose Wuhan, because this is where they are uh, rolling out 5G. They have tremendous air pollution. And so suddenly you have uh, a population of potentially very sick people who have other uh, conditions related to their lungs, etc., so then you create this fake cover story. Don't look over at here at the, the air pollution and the 5G. Uh, these people have a strange new virus called COVID-19. Uh, and yet there are people dying, in some cases collapsing on the street. What's going on there? Okay, well, 
the the deadly air pollution is quite real first of all uh and so is so are the harmful effects of 5g if they're using it in the range of uh 60 gigahertz um i would say this has been pretty well documented and uh you could have tremendous effects on the nervous system of some people uh at 60 gigahertz with 5g so the harm to we don't know how many people because all the reports you see are up in the air i mean what are you going to you know who's going to be uh reliable behind the massive lockdown oh everybody's dying no they're not and so that is another reason to start in china because the people who run these psyop epidemics know that as soon as the lockdown happens, nobody knows anything. And all kinds of wild speculation can occur. And then after it's all over, they can say, well, it appears to us that 400,000 people in China died. So you see, this really was a gigantic pandemic. And fortunately, we managed to contain it before it spread to the rest of the world, blah, 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 blah. So that's another reason to start it, so to speak, in China. But the people suffering, uh, here's another aspect of this. This is not just air quality in Wuhan. This is air quality in major Chinese cities. And I want to emphasize this. Unprecedented combinations of deadly toxins in the air. Never before seen in human history in these cities. Protests. A number of protests by Chinese citizens under this brutal regime, nevertheless, out in the streets in these cities last summer and before, going back several years, protesting the air quality. Chinese government is looking at this saying, oh, we could look at another Tiananmen Square here. This is not going to happen again. We're not going to permit this. Well, how convenient. Suddenly a new epidemic caused by a virus and we can lock down 100 million citizens no protests anymore fantastic wow terrific it's ingenious when you think about it evilly evilly ingenious they don't have to go to the trouble of creating a a weaponized virus in a lab they just make one up exactly exactly my point why bother even and, and even if they say they have a weaponized virus who knows what the effects would be when they release this thing, whatever it actually is, out there. You know, we, uh, and here's another aspect which uh, uh, we don't have time to go into in great detail, but I've covered epidemic duds going all the way back. West Nile, swine flu, Zika, etc., 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 you know, where each time you, you see the same pattern. Oh, this is going to be terrible. Oh, this could kill 50 million people. Oh, blah, 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 blah. And then you get something like in the case of SARS 2003, which the World Health Organization still refers to as a very serious epidemic. Yet if you look at their own figures, they say that the SARS epidemic killed 800 people in the entire world out of a population of 7 billion. And in fact, in Canada, 
a microbiologist who recently passed away, Frank Plummer, who worked for the World Health Organization, told reporters in 2003, he said, I'm really puzzled because, uh, you know, we're not finding this virus that this new virus we discovered in these SARS patients. In fact, the number of patients that we're seeing who have this hmm. virus is approaching that reminds, zero. That reminds me. Well, well that's a, but they right. never found anything to begin with. Or if it was, you know, uh, something out of a lab, which some people were saying at the time, that it was a total dud. So the idea of we're going to release a weaponized virus out there and cause this gigantic pandemic, ridiculous. I mean, they have no idea, first of all, what they're dealing with, really, in the lab, and two, what effect it would have, despite all of their claims. And as you say, it's much easier for them to cook up a completely fake epidemic in the terms that I described and push that on the population. So in a sense, it has been weaponized. It's a myth weaponized by the media. More of my conversation with John Rappaport from No More Fake News. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. A few moments remain with John Rappaport from nomorefakenews.com. As you were talking about uh, the SARS uh, scare from 2003 and how one of the late virologists or uh, public health specialists was saying he couldn't find SARS in anyone. And this reminded me of uh, an article you wrote maybe a year ago, maybe a little longer. Uh, it was based on a report by uh, Dr. Peter Doshi, I believed. And it had to do with the the everyday garden variety influenza and the fact that it's the actual virus isn't present in the vast majority of people who they claim die from influenza. Yes, he wrote two reports. I believe both of them were in the uh, British Medical Journal online, and I've quoted them extensively over the years. Uh, they're just absolutely fantastic. Overwhelmingly in the United States, and I presume in other countries, but certainly in the United States, every year, many, many, many samples, tissue samples taken from uh, people diagnosed with the regular flu in the U.S. are sent to labs for analysis. And overwhelmingly, the percentage of these comes back with no sign of any flu virus whatsoever. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, uh, therefore, most people... Uh, who are diagnosed with the flu don't have the flu. What do they have? What do they have, John? If you accept the idea of vaccination and what a vaccine is, uh, the conventional idea, uh, you know, uh, unless pigs can fly, uh, this vaccine is not going to be effective against the flu that isn't the flu. So that was one of the bombshell reports that he issued about the flu. The other one had to do with how many people actually die of the confirmed flu in the United States every year. And I took part in that conversation sometime before uh, Doshi published in the uh, British Medical Journal. I was in real time going back and forth by email with him and a guy named Martin Maloney. And we were looking at the CDC, the Centers of Control's own statistics 
own charts about flu and flu deaths in the U.S., which every year they claimed the same pretty much figure, 36,000 deaths in the U.S. Well, if you really started to break it down, uh, and I don't have the time to give you all the details, but we have the details, you would find that you couldn't really confirm any more, say, in the year 2001 than 18 flu deaths in the United States. Eighteen. Eighteen. As opposed to to the average of... ...virus in these people who died, and if you separated out flu from pneumonia, because the CDC cleverly made that into one category called flu and pneumonia, which they would call flu for the purposes of telling you how many people died every year in the U.S., and they claimed they were able to say... Uh, pneumonia was, you know, a complication stemming from the flu, which is ridiculous because pneumonia has many causes, including polluted air. Um, This is how they rigmaroled their way into saying 36,000 people died every year from the flu. But if you broke this down and you separated out pneumonia from the flu and you started looking in 2001, for example, at the number of cases where they actually did confirm uh, the presence of the flu virus in flu deaths, you would come up with the figure of we can say that 18 people died of the flu in the U.S. Which is interesting. Now, uh, I, I just yeah. wanted to quickly ask you about Donald Trump's uh, President Trump's press conference the other day about coronavirus, yeah. and he said some something very interesting about exactly that about uh, how we're all focused on the coronavirus, but what about the flu? Yeah, indeed, uh, and the piece has just gone up on my website about that. Um, people don't seem to get the joke, unfortunately, and the press certainly made very light of that. But basically what Trump started off his press conference by saying was, he said, you know, I just realized uh, and saw the figures on this that every year, uh, you know, he named some figure like 35,000, 36,000 people die of ordinary flu in the U.S., uh, which is, of course, straight out of the CDC. But we have like 15 cases that we're saying are the coronavirus right now. And aside from one guy, everybody seems to be doing just fine. You know, and he just kept on talking about this for a minute with the obvious implication. Well, if this is all true, then how come the CDC hasn't been calling every year a pandemic? I mean, can you imagine what would happen now if suddenly the press announced that there were 36,000 deaths from the coronavirus in America, the entire country would shut down. And yet the CDC is claiming that that happens every year in the U.S. from the ordinary flu. This is what Trump was sort of subtly uh, getting at and sort of like sticking an elbow in the ribs of the CDC while he was on the other side of his mouth claiming these are all very brilliant people and they're doing a great job. Boy, he's really going off script. He better be careful. Oh, he completely. I mean, you would never hear anybody in the sitting in the Oval Office talk about this ever. And yet he just kind of, you know, casually mentioned it. Uh, this is one of the things that the press hates about him. 
uh, whether you like them or not, I don't care. Uh, I'm talking to your audience now. But one of the things the press really hates about him is that they can't figure out what he's going to say next. He's not sticking to the script. And uh, just, I guess, in sort of summing up, how do you think then this is going to play out? Uh, are they going to are they going to stage a complete and utter uh, outbreak in in North America? Are they going to uh, make a mandatory vaccine? What's going to happen? You know, it's very hard to predict. I will say that as far as the the reaction in terms of governments, military potentially, and lockdowns, quarantines, et cetera, et cetera, all stemming really from the example of China, there's more of a chance, I would say, now than there ever has been for some serious kind of uh, crackdown you know, on travel, movement, that sort of thing in, in say, North America and, and in Europe than I've seen it before. I think, though, because each one of these uh, fake epidemics is really an experiment and a test and an exercise, that they do this gradually, epidemic by epidemic. And so what I'm sort of seeing at this point, at least, is, yeah, there's going to be more effects from this PSYOP than probably we saw in any of the other epidemic duds. Uh, but they're not going to completely claim that it's overrun the world. They're not going to take it that far. And uh, if they don't get the result that they want this year, they'll roll out something new next year or the year after. Well, that's, that's uh, a given. Because in all of these situations, you should think of them as sort of like intelligence agency covert ops. And in any covert op, there's always an after report, sort of like, and it's confidential. It's kind of like, how did we do with this one? Uh, What were the effects on the population? How did they react? Were they completely passive? Was there any resistance? Uh, How do we do financially, economically? You know, all these kinds of things. And they use that as information for the next time where they hope to exert more control. So, yeah, that's my sense. Uh, This is another one, and there will be another one and so forth. And as far as mandatory vaccination goes, it depends on where you are in the world. There will be some places where there's going to be mandatory vaccination when they roll out whatever it is they've got, which they're now saying could be a year away. Uh, I don't see this right now anyway as being, say, mandatory for everybody in the U.S. and Canada. But it could be one of these we strongly, strongly recommend, especially in people, uh, blah, 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 with this, blah, 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 or that, blah, 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 that they get this vaccine. This is very important. Well, 
uh, as they keep rolling them out, you're going to be very, very busy, as you always are. Uh, John, uh, always a, a pleasure and very insightful to talk to you. Again, I'll direct people to nomorefakenews.com. Make sure you pick up a, a copy, a CD-ROM copy of the Matrix series. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure, as always. Brooks Agnew is next to discuss the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Brooks Agnew is standing by to discuss what can only be described as an historic adventure that has the potential to change, well, everything about what we think we know about our planet, about life on this planet. It's called the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. It's taking place next August, and he's been talking about it for over a decade on this program, on my old TV show, and elsewhere. But now it looks like it's finally about to happen. My free monthly newsletter, The Inner Sanctum, will be published in just hours. So if you want to receive it, all you need to do is go to strangeplanet.ca and register. Just your name and email. It's fast and easy. And then starting this month, you'll start receiving The Inner Sanctum in your email inbox. And you'll also be automatically entered into the monthly draw for free Strange Planet gear, like t-shirts, hoodies, socks, and more. Register right now at strangeplanet.ca. According to legends going back more than a thousand years, our planet is hollow and is inhabited by a vast array of creatures, including highly evolved humanoids. My next guest is organizing an expedition to the North Pole aboard a Russian nuclear icebreaker sometime next summer in order to find the opening that leads to the Earth's interior. Brooks Agnew is a multi-patented engineer and a six-time Amazon best-selling author of nine books, widely featured in numerous scientific documentaries. He's an internationally acclaimed lecturer on energy, manufacturing, and quality improvement while working with numerous Fortune 100 companies. He's been the host of X Squared Radio for more than 14 years and currently serves as the CEO of an electric truck manufacturing company in North Carolina. Brooks Agnew, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? So good to be here, Richard. I'm doing great. It's been it's a while. What, what's, yeah. uh, what's been happening with you? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I, I slowed down from light speed just to do this program. So. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Uh, it's been going uh, a lot. A lot's been going. Uh, consulting business is going good. Webinar business is going good. We're on for uh, August of 2021 for the uh, Inner Earth Expedition. We relaunched the website uh, right at the first of the year. We took on three more staff members, which is making work a lot easier on that project. And we just launched Hollow Earth TV. So it's all seems to be coming together now. Well, uh, let's talk about August 2021. And the original uh, plan, if I'm remembering correctly, was you were going to raise money. You were going to rent a, uh, a Russian nuclear icebreaker and take it up into the Arctic uh, Ocean in search of this opening into the inner Earth. How is the August 21 inner Earth expedition uh, different, or, or is it? 
It's a little different in that we're using a newer uh, ship. The Arctica class ships have been uh, have been rebuilt. They they just finished building the third new vessel. So these are new hulls, brand new ships. Um, they carry 125 passengers. They have a crew of about 120. And um, in fact, I just got done watching a basically a home video that somebody shot as a tourist on one of those boats and it was it was quite impressive pretty well done for for a little home movie we're gonna do uh a dry run uh in june uh we're going to moscow and then we're going to saint petersburg and then we're going on on up to murmansk and we're meeting with the ship company there we're going to film the boats there we're not going out to sea but as I said, this is the dry run so that when we do uh, move all these scientists from their places around the world, from, from California to, to England, actually we have one coming from France, uh, we know where we're meeting in Moscow and how we're getting to Murmansk and, and we know what, that way we're not the blind leading the blind. So uh, again, this is all uh, being paid for out of my pocket, but uh, Next year, because we just launched Hollow Earth TV, next year we now have the technology and the satellite access to live stream. So we are we are offering three packages. One is just videos, which are exclusive to uh, subscribers to Hollow Earth TV. Webinars, which allows fans all around the world to interact with us as we do these live webinars. We'll do like round tables with uh, myself and Brad Olson and Suzanne Ross and Doc Skinner. And uh, we'll talk over uh, things with, uh, for instance, the shipping company and the brokerage house. So people can ask all the questions that they want to ask. And as we go on, we'll have scientists from Stanford and Harvard and MIT and Cambridge on. And they'll be able to ask questions of them. And it'll be great value added for them. And uh, that. So those subscriptions are how we will monetize and and pay for the ship because it's about four million dollars to pull this off, which means we need about a hundred thousand subscribers paying, you know, four or five bucks a month till we launch. All right. So for, for people listening who haven't been following this amazing saga, and you and I did a, a TV show, my my late TV show. I guess going back about eight years ago, I think we did an episode. I met you down at that time in Mississippi. Yeah. Talking about your ex uh, expedition. For those who, who, who aren't familiar with it, just explain uh, in very simple uh, terms what you intend to do. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, we have um, we've followed this legend everywhere for the last 10 years. We've been to Tibet and China and Antarctica. We've been to Japan and Mexico. And we've chased down Mount Shasta, I don't know how many times. We've chased down and interviewed just about every lead that we can interview. And we're down to the last thing, which is actually going above the Arctic Circle. We've got it narrowed down to about a 100-mile square. That's 10,000 square miles area where we think this uh, opening in the crust is. It's not what people think. It's not like a big hole that you can see from space that airplanes have to avoid and everything. We're pretty sure, based on all the other instrumental measurements that we have, that this is probably a fissure in the crust somewhere around 
4,200 meters deep in the ocean. And this fissure connects an ocean on the inside of the crust to the ocean on the outside of the crust. And that we believe that there's not only seawater, but sea life moving back and forth between the two oceans. So this fissure that's at a depth of 4,200 meters below the surface of the ocean. That's right. How are you going to access that uh, from this icebreaker? Well, there are a couple ways. One is we have what's called a dart. Uh, We drop it from the boat. It goes all the way to the bottom. It embeds itself in the seafloor. A couple seconds later, the springs activate. It pops itself up. It inflates with nitrogen and floats back to the surface. It takes about three and a half hours for this to make a round trip. When it comes to the surface, we retrieve it. We pull the core and we take that sample. That's one way. The other way is uh, far more expensive. We're talking with a company that has a submersible, not manned, it's remote, but it is tethered. That is to say it is an autonomous because there's no way to communicate with an autonomous one that's, that's a rover. Uh, and it has to be slightly modified because this uh, submersible right now, it only goes down to uh, one kilometer. It doesn't go to four kilometers. So the tether has to be lengthened. It has to be strengthened. The sensors have to be upgraded to be able to take the pressure. We will be able to get high-definition photography. It has an arm on it so we can take samples on the bottom. Uh, but in order to bring this submersible, the company that makes it wants an additional $5 million. So chances are we're not going to take that submersible unless we're wildly successful with the uh, subscriptions. So you, you, if you send this dart down there and you do a, some sort of a core sample, what's, mm-hmm. and it comes back up, what's it going to show you? What's it going to tell you? Uh, well, what we will have is, of course, sediment off the bottom. And in that sediment is going to be not only minerals, but also uh, plankton and fossils and things like that, that will probably have a mix of the two life forms, not the life forms in our ocean and the life forms in that ocean. Plus, we'll be able to take seawater samples, which will most assuredly be different since the inner ocean is not exposed to sunlight. Uh, It's going to have different salinity, different crystallinity, different plankton in it. And this is, as I said, just a data gathering trip. And we have a hypothesis. We think this fissure's there. And if we, if we, all six, seven universities are taking their instruments with us, if we come back empty handed, then we have not, you know, disproven the hypothesis. If we come back um, that, uh, we know for sure there's no fissure there, then then we have basically confirmed that there is no opening. But hopefully what will happen, because we th- we think we've narrowed this down based on um, oceanographic samples that have been taken in, in the Gulf Stream, which goes right by this area, uh, that this is the source of the sea life. Somewhere in this 100-mile uh, stretch of bottom, which is not traveled any other way except these icebreakers no ships go this way but we've had a couple of times since 
2007, when this particular area of the Arctic Circle is ice-free. It hasn't happened very often. And both times that it has happened to a large extent, we've had a massive uptick in ancient sea life being netted in, in areas where it shouldn't be. So we're, we think we've got it narrowed down to this area. So in other words, beneath the ocean floor is another ocean. Uh, how does that prove that the Earth is hollow? Ah, well, um, since we last met, uh, Washington University, which is in, in St. Louis, uh, got a grant and they tasked their grad students to enter 600,000 seismograms into a computer program that they wrote. And what this computer program was designed to do is take these 600,000 seismograms. These are, these are readouts from 600,000 different earthquakes and have, they've been recorded, but the data hasn't been analyzed. So once the data was put into the model, they were able to do because of the source of these quakes are all over the place. And so the, the effect is to kind of take a CAT scan of the earth. And so what has happened is they, they created an, an image of what the crust looks like. And what they conclusively determined is that about 900 miles underneath our ocean, there's another ocean. And the waves of that ocean, this is, this is an ocean the size of the Arctic Ocean. It's underneath the Atlantic Ocean. And they can see the waves of that ocean crashing on, an, on a shore inside the crest. Wow. So occasionally uh, people will, you, you mentioned, you know, f- ancient sea life and so forth. And we were familiar with the, the coelacanth, this this prehistoric fish that was caught in the Indian Ocean that was supposedly extinct, you know, millions and millions of years ago, uh, and other strange sea creatures and so forth that, that wash up on beaches and so forth. So is it is it in line with this theory that these creatures are coming up from this other ocean uh, occasionally through this fissure, and, and that's why... That's why they're present in, in our oceans occasionally, but they're, they're very difficult to find. Technically speaking, it's not a theory yet. It's still a hypothesis, but, but yes, and it goes beyond that because in, in 2008, when this particular area of the ocean opened up, there was a big calving event. A calving event is when a large piece of ice breaks loose and flows free and it opens up uh, an area. Uh, that summer in Malaysia, the NOAA funds a, a sampling where they go and sample rays, like stingrays and manta rays. And the reason they do this is because rays in the ocean are very sensitive to environmental stress, kind of like kind of like tree frogs in the Amazon. Uh, if there's pollution or acid rain or anything, you know, you, they, you see a lot of mutations in these particular life forms. So normally they see. 50 to 100 mutations when they take these samples. I think they do it every five years. They went in 2008, the summer of 2008, which is after this calving event, and they found 
1,500 new species of rays. We're not talking mutations. We're talking new species, rays that we've never seen before. Big ones, small ones, uh, frilled sharks, dorsal uh, squids. These, these we've never seen before. The frilled shark has probably been extinct for a million and a half years. And this was a full adult blind frilled shark that they netted. It didn't live for very long after they brought it up, but it was alive. And they are pretty sure that these species are from that inner sea. And then they made their way into our ocean. They, they couldn't, they were so different. They couldn't even breed with the other species that were in our sea. And they ended up all dying of old age. I don't think they even managed to save any of them and continue to breed them. But we got all kinds of pictures of this stuff. And the report is just is just fascinating. These people were like, where the hell did all these species come from? And what we think is, it's part of the hypothesis that this inner sea, we know that it exists because we've remotely measured it. But the hypothesis is that this inner sea has actual sea life in it. And the way to prove that is to get to this vent and see if we can find fossils and microscopic evidence and even chemical evidence that that uh, that sea does in fact uh, exist and that it, it is blending with our ocean at this specific location. Brooks Agnew is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show, engineer, inventor, entrepreneur, author, a lecturer, and uh, he's heading up the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition, and uh, hopefully in August of 2021, uh, he and uh, a number of scientists will uh, will board this nuclear uh, icebreaker and head up to uh, the Arctic Ocean to find this fissure in at the bottom of our ocean, the Arctic Ocean, leading to this inner world. So if there is an inner ocean does that mean likely that there are other there are inner land masses and 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 what else might inhabit this area yes there are definitely uh, land masses because we would not have picked up the waves crashing on the inner shore now we we don't really know how big the waves were but they had to be really something for the vibrations to go through 900 miles of of rock and and magma to make its way to the surface and be picked up at all these different locations uh, so they're, they could be very high. They could be you know, like the area that we're sailing through has hundred foot seas. And, and I've actually seen film of the seas, uh, almost 200 feet actually cresting over the top of some of the North sea oil rigs that are up there, which are about a uh, hundred yards off the water. So the, the ocean's really, really rough here because this, this is just the, you know, Coriolis effect of the earth at this high latitude. The tides are enormous, uh, you know, where we see maybe an, a six or eight foot tide in Southern California. Up there, you see like a 75 foot tide. It's a tremendous amount of water that's moving up and down. It's, it's really, really quite incredible. The amount of energy that's, that's stored in this water. And by the way, if you want to participate, if you want to learn more, we try to keep as much information as we can at the website. It's very simple. It's N-P-I-E-E, which stands for North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. And there are some free videos there that you can watch. There's a free newsletter that you could be part of, and we'll send one of those out a month. 
And uh, then, like I said, there's some paid content that starts, I think, at eight bucks. So it's it's virtually affordable for anybody. We're trying to make this so that our 40 million fans that are around the world that we built up over the years can find us. And hopefully they're all watching or listening to your radio program uh, as this plays. And they all rush there and sign up because if you do, we're going to make amazing things happen and you're going to be part of it. N-P-I-E-E dot, is it com? Yes, dot com. N-P-I-E-E dot com. That stands for North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. N-P-I-E-E dot com. So, years ago, when we talked, you were talking about the idea that there may be a, a large opening, uh, that, and perhaps you could take this nuclear icebreaker up there, find the opening, maybe even fly a helicopter through it. What, inf- what new information did you get that changed that? Uh, we, there have been some more satellites put up. We still don't have uh, satellite imagery of this particular area because it's usually shrouded in uh, overcast conditions. It's very rarely in the sun. Uh, but we have enough information now from different angles, from these new satellites, X-ray and otherwise, we're, we're positive that there's no, you know, 100-mile hole in the north region that, you know, everybody has to avoid or else they go down, you know, the toilet bowl. Uh, we're, we have enough evidence to now know that that's not the case. Uh, I spoke to two retired one is a corpsman and the other one was an actual navigation colonel and they both did polar cruises on nuclear powered subs and they were in this area of course the like i said the ocean's 40 43 4400 meters deep not that subs can go that deep they can go about a uh, thousand to 1200 feet on a normal cruise but they sailed right through this area so there's no hole or the shit, the subs would never have been able to go through there, or they would have detected it. All right, we're going to take a time out when we come back. We'll talk about, in a little more detail, this uh, inner Earth theory, the hollow Earth uh, theory. It's been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about perhaps even uh, Admiral, Bur- Admiral Byrd, who uh, supposedly, according to a very controversial document, I guess his diary, uh, in which he claimed that he found an, an, an opening into the inner Earth down at the other end, the South Pole. We'll talk about that and much more. Brooks Agnew, my guest, the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition, back with more here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. We're back with Brooks Agnew. He is leading an expedition into the inner earth, N-P-I-E-E dot com. N-P-I-E-E dot com. That stands for North Pole Inner Earth Expedition dot com. If people sign up, they get the newsletter, but what else do they get? They get the stream live uh, as, yeah. you're, as you're heading up there? There, there are three different uh, products that they can sign up for. One is access to exclusive video. This is content that came from Antarctica because we, uh, Brad Olson just got done with that a tour last winter. And other content that we've taken around the world, Shasta, Tibet, uh, Mexico, uh, content you won't see anywhere. You won't see it on YouTube anywhere. We do it on our live presentations, but we want to reach a bigger audience. 
So we're making that available there. We'll keep adding content as the year goes on. The next one is the uh, one where you can access the webinars. We will have regular webinars, and these will start out with, of course, our staff. And then we will add university people, uh, crew, the, the actual ship people to it so you can ask questions and really um, – you know, follow your curiosity. And then we will also have a live stream component. When we uh, depart from uh, Murmansk, it's Murmansk is the way they pronounce it, uh, we're going to be at sea for 12 days, 10 days pretty much on location. We just recently uh, gained access to one satellite that has that that we can stream to from that high latitude. It's not easy to do, but we can get reach one satellite. That satellite will then download to two locations: one in America, one in Europe, and they will ground distribute through the internet that way. So you'll and we'll have four channels. We'll have. 12 cameras running almost 24 hours a day and we'll select four of those to stream and if you want to get you a big pot of coffee and and stay up for 10 days you can stream at 24 hours a day for 10 days it's going to be a reality program uh off the meds <laughs> uh, so a lot of it will record about 3,000 hours of video. So a lot of that will be available uh, after we do the post-production. But live stream, there's no reason in the world why uh, 100 or 200,000 people couldn't go with us and watch this as it happens without the seasickness. Now, let's talk about the theory of... A, a hollow earth and uh, i don't know how far back it goes i know sir edmund haley we have the haley's comet was named after him and and uh, he proposed that all planets uh form as as hollow spheres does it go back further than that or do i have that right um that's the furthest uh official like scientific one sir edmund haley uh, uh proposed and then um a gardener a marshall gardener patented it in 1965 and then, uh, of course, you have the two uh, bird uh, ventures. One was in 1926 when he flew over the North Pole. That was uh, an amazing venture. I'll tell you, the, the, so close. This guy came so many times. They, they leased a boat called the Chantilly. They took a, a Fokker airplane apart, put it on the boat, sailed up to Spitsbergen, and they, there was no dock, just a beach. And like I said, the tides are very rough. This is 1926. There's, there's no modern facilities like we would think. They built a floating dock. And by hand, they unloaded that ship right over the waves, right onto the beach. And it's a good thing they got it unloaded because less than an hour later, the icebergs began coming into the bay. And they just got the Chantilly out in time. It would have been crushed. They rebuilt the airplane on the beach and waited for the snow to come, and they took the plane off, loaded with fuel, uh, Admiral Byrd and an engineer. And Admiral Byrd is an expert at navigation with a, with a sextant. I don't know if you've ever used one before, but they're hard enough on a boat, let alone an airplane. And he reported that he flew 
from Spitsbergen over the North Pole, made a U-turn, and flew all the way back. Now, the elapsed time of the trip was a little short by a couple of hours. And so the rumor, well, he claimed he had a tailwind going in both directions. I heard those stories when I was a kid about my grandparents, you know, walking uphill in the snow both ways to school. But uh, I I don't know. And, and they didn't then either. But who could argue with him? Except that the next time it was done was a couple of years later. Another um, adventurer flew the same route. Only he made it to the North Pole, documented it, and he took two hours longer to do it. So we're not exactly sure if Admiral Byrd actually flew over the North Pole, but he did report that he flew over lush green areas where none should have been. And a lot of people claimed he got off course and different things, and it's a big controversy. But it's enough of a controversy to to make people wonder about it all the way till now. And then in 1929, he flew over the South Pole. So he set both records, which makes him an aviation hero, but obviously there was no film. Right. So, but he did it again in 47, didn't he, at the South Pole? And isn't- well, 47 was a different thing. That was uh, Operation High Jump, and that was in response to a report that a lot of the Nazi Navy, especially submarines, had escaped and were not destroyed and did not surrender properly. And they moved, had been moving supplies to, to the South Pole for years, going all the way back to the, to the early 40s. And the Americans, all battle-hardened and you know, ready to go, they didn't want to fight the Nazis again. So they went down there preemptively to, to, in a mop-up operation. And as the story goes, they encountered forces that were more advanced and they got cut to pieces and sent home so uh, evidently there were reports of flying saucers shooting laser cannons and as long as uh the uh, pby's and other aircraft uh, of course uh, uh, yeah corsairs took off and tried to do battle with them they would shoot back but as soon as the americans quit shooting then the flying saucers would stop shooting and uh, evidently the report is that they they licked their wounds, headed back to Argentina, and uh, buried the operation uh, in the annals of black history. Right. And th- that gets wrapped up with his whole legend that the Nazis had a base down there. Uh, they were cooperating with some alien race, and uh, they were utilizing their UFO uh, technology. And in fact, you mentioned uh, Brad Olson, who's going to be part of your expedition, and, and, and Brad just returned from the Antarctic a few months ago. I had him on coast when he got back. He he was there in search of, he calls it the Illuminati playground, uh, mm-hmm. in, in search of a, a, a huge UFO, uh, a huge alien craft, allegedly, that's su- supposedly now emerging from the melting ice uh, down in the Antarctic. Um, so, I mean, the Nazis, or Hitler, b- believed the Earth was hollow, didn't he? Uh, I've heard rumors of that as well. And, uh, I think, you know, there was a, there, there was no reason to doubt it, uh, cause we didn't have a good theory of how the earth was made. We had geologists who m- 
wrote textbooks and drew models of how we live on a molten ball floating through space and somehow we exist on uh, tectonic plates floating around on that molten ball. And, you know, we have a magnetosphere and we have a north and south pole and none of that seems to agree with it either, but they, they just kept, you know, writing their own science books with uh, uh, pressure waves and shear waves and shadow waves. And every time they would make a measurement that conflicted with their uh, current picture of the way the planet is made, they just explained it away or, or drew a dotted line around it. But uh, what we started to do is, and I did it reluctantly because I went to the same school everybody else did. I have all their textbooks too. Um, we we did a cross disciplinary uh, review. We took geology, oceanography, uh, astronomy, cosmology, motion of planets, and the more satellites we put up, and the more information we gained, the more it started to put in doubt the classic way that we think planets form. And then when, of course, Pluto was discovered to be hollow. Everybody was going, well, I mean, if Pluto's hollow, what else is hollow? And, there, you know, the rest is a legitimate hypothesis. And so what we're trying to do is gather enough evidence to prove the hypothesis false. And if we can't do it, then, then we can't do it. It doesn't mean that, that uh, they're right. It just means we haven't collected enough evidence to, to disprove their, their original idea of how the Earth is made. All right, Brooks, we're going to take another quick time out. We'll come back and continue to discuss the North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. N-P-I-E-E dot com. N-P-I-E-E dot com. You can find more information there, sign up for the newsletter, and uh, find out how you can get involved, even uh, live stream this uh, historical expedition in search of a, a passage into the inner earth. Let's talk a little bit about what else might be uh, down there. And first of all, sort of paint me a picture of uh, how this inner world, this inner earth uh, might look if there is life there. How would it it, it, it exist outside of the uh, the ocean life? Hmm. Well, you know now you're now you're accessing the little boy in me. I mean that if there is an ocean there, that means it's not frozen and it's also not boiling. You know, like a big s- steam uh, cooker down there. It means that it's it's in the range that can support life. And I can tell you as a scientist, if there's space there, even if they are extremophores, there will be life there. It is interesting that when we look at the way our magnetosphere is formed, we are pretty sure that it is the result of counter-rotating metallic bodies. We now know absolutely irrefutably that the core of the Earth is an iron-xenon crystal. We think it's about 12 to 1300 miles in diameter based on its density at a little over 14 grams per cubic centimeter. And that it's probably due to conservation of momentum rotating much faster than our crest, which is exactly why we have the magnetosphere that we do. Other planets don't have magnetospheres. Mars does not. The moon doesn't. But Earth does. 
And um, if that's the case, with the crust being 900 miles thick and the core being 12 to 1300 miles thick, that means there's about a thousand miles of open space there that's full of air. And there's no telling what kind of life could be in there. And by the way, an iron crystal, iron xenon crystal would be white in, in brightness, not like a fusion sun like we have, but iron light is the same kind of uh, light that we get from, say, a grow lamp. So it's perfectly in the wavelength for photosynthesis. Ah, so that is the light source. That is the inner Earth sun, really. That's correct. It's not a sun like ours. It's not a star, like a fusion star. It's not off-gassing. But at that temperature, 6,000 degrees C, uh, matrixed with xenon, which, by the way, uh, solves another big mystery that we've had for uh, forever and ever. Uh, there's a law in chemistry called uh, the law of partial pressures. Um, we would do a headspace analysis of, say, a Pepsi bottle. If you stuck a needle through the cap of the Pepsi bottle and you took a sample of the air above the liquid in the Pepsi bottle and you shot that sample onto a gas chromatograph, it would identify all the chemicals in that headspace. And that would be in proportion to all the chemicals that are in the liquid. It's called the law of partial pressures. But the xenon in our atmosphere that is present in our oceans is missing about 90% of it. It's not even close. And we've always wondered, where's all the xenon from our atmosphere? It should be there. And when we began doing spectrographic measurements of the core, we were getting a very sharp, clean iron signal, which means not much impurities, but it did have a little side hump on it. We were always wondering what that was. And so they built an experiment, which is called the Diamond Anvil Experiment. They took an industrial diamond about the size of a football, cut it in two, put each half on a hydraulic ram. And then in between the two pieces of diamond, they put a crucible. And then they filled that crucible full of iron uh, filings in the ground state smashed the iron together between those anvils at pressures that we believe the core is is experiencing and then shot a laser through the diamond to heat that sample up to 6,000 degrees C. And they didn't get the same signal. They got the iron, but the other part of the hump was not there until they matrixed it with xenon. And that's when the crystal formed and that's when the wave shape matched exactly so we know the core of we know what it's made of. And then that experiment was duplicated by Carnegie Science. And Carnegie Science did a wonderful presentation. They documented everything, and it was absolutely irrefutable. It was a validated experiment. We now know what the core of the Earth is made of. All right, we'll take one final time out, come back with Brooks Agnew. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Brooks, you mentioned uh, trips to Mount Shasta, Tibet. What do those trips have to do with the possibility of an interior uh, Earth or an inner Earth? Well, uh, we were chasing the legend, and uh, some of that legend was 
perpetrated, or should I say uh, uh, carried forward, through a series of rumors that had to do with um, what we call channelers. Now, channelers are individuals who believe that they're in touch with uh, trans-dimensional beings that exist in the inner earth. Oh, they have names and they have cities and there's a whole lore that goes with it. So part of those rumors took us to Tibet. So we spent um, almost 10 days on the Tibetan plateau, which is not a vacation, let me tell you. It starts at 11,000 feet and goes up from there. Uh, but we did discover that a core part of Tibetan Buddhism is this belief that there is an inner sun with a life force. They, they, they picture it as a yin and yang, but there's a, a life force inside the planet and that the planet actually has a symbiotic relationship with human and all animal life on the surface. And that when these are all in harmony, then you have this, this great bliss, this great power, this great uh, ability to, to perpetrate or perpetuate the species. And when it's not, then you have conflict and you have scarcity and you have calamities and cataclysms that kind of spank the human race. There's a lot of symbolism uh, in it, and we followed it from Lhasa all the way to Everest and all the way down into Nepal, and we captured most of this on film. And then Shasta had a very similar kind of culture, had uh, several people who have written good books. They've been very charismatic in their movement. And so we made several trips to Shasta. I just got back from there again this last spring and uh, spent time uh, chasing down these legends, going to different openings and meeting with different people and doing different meditations. And we have to be open-minded about this. We can't just poo-poo people because they're not scientists, because at the end of the day, a fact is a direct observation. What we're looking for is a way to validate the direct observation. We're looking for a leaf, a bone, a photograph, a sample, some kind of instrumental validation that these kinds of things exist. So far, we don't have that for these legends, but the story is just fascinating. And all the people we've talked to around the world are very passionate about it, and we can't deny it. So we're collecting the information. So the Tibetans talked about Shangri-La and Shambhala. Um, I'm thinking about that old Three Dog Night song, Shambhala. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and, and Native, Am Native Americans have uh, legends about this. So are there other access points then into this inner earth besides this fissure that lies at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean? Yes, there's uh, another one uh, that's uh, reported. It's called Mammoth Cave. It's in Kentucky. Uh, we went there eight times. We explored every cave system. We met with the oldest people that had been working there for decades and decades. It was an extremely interesting and very well-developed facility. But the deepest point is 366 feet. That's a long way from finishing off the book Edidorfa, which allegedly is someone who walked into the inner earth from Mammoth Cave. And the, I'm not sure if it was the uh, the Hopi Indians. They had a legend about ant people or something. The, these these creatures that had come up from the inner earth. So, yeah. well, you, yeah, there are several legends about life coming out. 
Not too much about going in, like the Popol Vuh uh, talks about these twin boys, which are basically the the beginning of their human race, and the life force that comes out of the earth. A lot of worship about uh, jaguar forces and dragon forces uh, that come out of the inner earth. And the Hopi, of course, have their legends and a lot of drawings, ancient cochinas and drawings about sort of like praying mantis-like people that uh, allegedly came from the inner earth and and embar well um, shared advanced knowledge with them that helped them be a better people and more advanced. And uh, the idea, the the legend that UFOs we we have many reports of these craft coming out of the ocean uh, that that might suggest that. They've always been here and that perhaps they, too, are denizens of this inner Earth. What do you think about that? Well, that's something we have a lot of independent evidence on. We now have radar. We have video. We have lots of pictures, some of it official from the government, some of it recently uh, released. So we know that these UFOs exist, but we know also that they're as present as they want to be. If they wanted to be more present, there's probably nothing we could do about it. But the... The conclusion we draw is that they're all over the place. Every place we went, from Japan to to uh, uh, Seattle to, let's see, Mexico City, there were all kinds of evidence that these ships of all kinds of different sizes and capabilities exist. But they're not always in the sky. They're somewhere. They're not parked somewhere on the ground. And uh, my friend uh, Dan Willis, who was a radio man in the Navy, uh, he received a distress call from a ship off the coast that a 60-foot silver disc had come up out of the water and then shot straight up into the sky and off into orbit or out of orbit. And, uh, you know, the rest is is com- actually a lot of it very validated data that these ships – may be able to withstand the pressures of our oceans. And one thing we know about our oceans is we don't know much about them. We know the sea lanes pretty well, but as far as the rest of the sea floor, which makes up four-sevenths of the planet, it's navigable, but we don't know anything about the ocean floor. We just we can see the ocean floor down to about 300 feet. We have a lot of side scan sonar of places like the Mediterranean, the, uh, the Devil's Triangle, some deep areas off the coast of Cuba, and that's it. We just don't know what the seafloor holds for us. And for all we know, there's a whole other civilization that lives in cities on the seafloor. So August of 2021, you're heading up there. Uh, how, how many scientists in tow on this uh, vessel? <laughs> We are uh, we're, we're going first this June uh, on a dry run, and then next year in August, we're going to take 22 filmmakers with us, the, a lot of cameramen and people to keep up with digital data and directors to keep everything flowing, and then uh, six universities and one – we may bring some people from Carnegie Science, which is not a university, but it's a it's – a, a nonprofit, and they have some very excellent people there, and they're interested. And we're going to take two to three people from each one of these and their support staff. And so we intend on bringing 80 to 90 professional scientists, about 22 filmmakers, and the rest will be staff. And we have 20 seats that we're leaving open 
if if this speaks to you and you feel like you need to be on this thing, there's a way for you to do it. There are 20 seats that are open. I was going to say there's a lot riding on this uh, expedition, but if you think about it, everything is riding on this expedition. If you prove this data that comes up from the the depths of the uh, the Arctic Ocean, if you prove that there is an inner Earth, we have to we have to write all our rewrite all our textbooks. We have to rethink everything about where we come from, who we are. Well, those are the writers. A lot of those grad students, they're going to be working on their PhDs. And there'll be a lot of PhDs written from the data gathered from this trip. N-P-I-E-E dot com. North Pole Inner Earth Expedition. People can uh, log on there uh, and become part of, hi- part of history. Subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, subscribe to the live stream, which will happen uh, next year. Uh, Brooks, it sounds like you're finally going to do it. Well, you know me. You've known me for a lot of years, and I've I've done big projects, and I don't like leaving things undone. And this is just something that's been undone on my shelf for almost 10 years, and it's about time. We now have the technology, the ability to stream it. It's affordable. Uh, the ships are built. Uh, this is a good opportunity. The economy is strong enough to do it. We should be able to get this done. Fantastic. Exciting. Thank you so much. My pleasure. That's it for me. Back next week with Len Kasten, the author of Dark Fleet, The Secret Nazi Space Program and the Battle for the Solar System. Until then, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the rooftops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.